Our scripture lesson today is Psalm 100. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, we acknowledge, even as we have sung, that all wisdom comes from you. All good gifts come from you. So, Father, as we wait upon you and serve you in worship this morning, bless us from your word so that we may in turn be a blessing to the nations. Speak to us today. Change us. Make us more like our Savior Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you only have 45 days Shopping days left until Christmas. How are you doing? We joke with one another with that phrase this time of year. And yet there is an unfortunate underlying reality to it, isn't there? Have you ever paused to reflect upon just how ridiculous the statement is? We allow ourselves to almost spiral completely out of control this time of year, creating for ourselves excessive busyness and anxiety over what? A shopping list? Did we leave anyone out? Did we spend enough on each individual? Did we find just the right gift? And most importantly, have we caught all the great sales? And one of the great tragedies in this season is that we blow right past what should be one of the most important American holidays, Thanksgiving a holiday that began out of a desire to give thanks to God for his benefits, has become a time not only to virtually ignore God, but to indulge in our own lusts and passions. We feast on luxurious food and drink and pay homage to the American gods of football and shopping. But of course, we Christians do at least say grace before the meal, don't we? The point of the message today from God's Word is not a challenge to reclaim an American holiday, although I think that the principles we will see in God's Word may lead some of our families to do just that as a means of developing the discipline of being thankful. Thanksgiving is an activity, not a day or season on a calendar. It is not simply a state of being that involves some warm, fuzzy feeling. Being thankful is an active daily discipline for the Christian that takes work and demands something from us. The institution of a Thanksgiving holiday in our culture isn't good because we pause for one day of the year to toss out a token prayer of 
Thanks for all the stuff, God. It is a good observance because we are, by our sinful nature, ungrateful, self-centered, and forgetful beings who need to be reminded year after year to be thankful to God. This is nothing new, by the way. God's people have always fallen short in their gratitude to him. Long before the pilgrims had their feast with the Native Americans and long before our Thanksgiving became an annual tradition in America, God had in place a yearly Thanksgiving holiday for his people. When God was establishing the laws and traditions for his covenant people, he commanded them to observe seven feasts or holidays throughout the Jewish calendar year. These feasts are listed in Leviticus 23 for us. The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was one of the three major feasts within these Jewish observances. This week-long festival was to be celebrated during the fall harvest as a time of giving thanks to God. The people were to build simple tents, or booths, to live in during the week-long festivities as a reminder of their ancestors' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, living in makeshift tents and huts. More importantly, though, it was to direct them to give thanks for their salvation from Egypt and for God's daily provision of their needs in the wilderness. In this feast, they were acknowledging God as their Redeemer who had freed them from slavery and their Creator, the one who provided for their daily physical needs. God in his grace established this observance because he knows that the hearts of sinful humans need to be reminded over and over and over again to be thankful. Psalm 100 is perhaps second only to number 23 in its familiarity to God's people. And through powerful expression, it is at once both grand and brief, serving as a brilliant tutor for giving thanks to God in worship. In fact, it is the only entry in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, with the heading, a psalm for giving thanks. Let's look at it again in the first three verses. Follow along here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In the first half of the psalm, we see that thanksgiving is a natural response of the believer to God's nature, who God is in his nature. The first stanza of the hymn, which are verses 1 and 2 in your Bibles, give three very active imperatives. Do you see them? Make noise joyfully. Serve gladly. And come singing. Whatever worship is, as described here, it is certainly not passive. The worshiper is to be fully engaged with their will, their emotions, their creativity, their body, and their very voices. Thankful worship is marked by joyful noise, glad service, and active singing. Notice, too, that these imperatives are not given to the elite worship squad up front, composed of pastors, instrumentalists, bands, praise teams, organist choirs, etc. 
No, the call goes out to all the earth. God is amassing for himself a people from all corners of the globe to worship him with thanksgiving. Christian, do not give over your God-ordained calling and worship to the paid professionals and volunteers on the platform, for it is not ours to take from you. As a unique part of the body of Christ, no other heart and voice can fulfill your role, and you must lend your body, will, and emotions to the mix. The moment that the folks up front become a proxy for the folks out there, a church has entered into unbiblical worship. God forbid that the local body of believers known as St. Andrew's Prez ever become spectators in this worship service. If you ever find yourself tired of standing a little bit too long or a little burdened by all that you have to do in the service, fumbling around with things, thank God for that burden. Ask him to help you bear it gladly and rejoice that the opposite is not true. And should you ever find yourselves just sitting there passively as spectators during worship, then set up a meeting with the pastor and the director of worship and arts and straighten us out. (laughs) Worship is a service that you enact. It is not an experience that you just sit by and enjoy. Are you a noisy worshiper? Notice I didn't say obnoxious. We as God's people of all people should be loud in our expression of our faith. Not simply to be boisterous or to be heard over others, but because knowing what Christ has done for us, which we will look at in a little bit more in a minute, we should hardly be able to contain ourselves Our worship should almost explode from the core of who we are, even as a volcano explodes and and can't contain itself. I remember as a young man in my mid-20s being at a very large Christian conference or gathering with thousands of fellow believers. The, the, The singing was just wonderful. Those of you who have been in that kind of environment know what I'm talking about. I got a little carried away, though, with the congregational singing, and I began to just really let it go. The man standing in front of me turned around and scowled at me for singing too loudly. So I did the Christian thing. I scowled back and sang louder. In hindsight, I suppose that was a little immature and and a bit of a selfish response on my part. But at the time, I wasn't about to let someone rob me of worshiping my Savior with my whole being and all of my might. After all, does God deserve less from us? Here the psalmist implores us to shout out God's praise. Even as grateful subjects welcome a monarch to the palace balcony. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The second imperative from the psalmist is perhaps not as clear to us as shouting and singing are. What does it mean to serve the Lord in gladness? At St. Andrew's, our Sunday gathering is called a worship service. A service of worship. That is by intent. It is not an accident. By using that title, the church is saying that we gather each week to service Christ in worship. The dictionary defines serve as to be of use, to supply something needed or desired, to wait on. In other places in Scripture, in the context of worship, we are told to wait on the Lord. 
albeit limited, one of the most helpful illustrations for me in trying to understand this concept is to reflect upon the duties of the staff in a British Victorian manner as depicted in shows like Downton Abbey. Picture, if you can, a grand dinner at a huge dinner table. All the individual servants are posted at attention behind each of the guests around the dinner table. As they serve and wait at table, the staff, even though they silently stand in one place most of the evening, are certainly not passive. They are actively poised so that at the slightest gesture or glance of the honored guest, they can quickly wait upon and tend to their every desire. The dictionary defines wait in this way, to stay in place in expectation of. To serve or wait upon the Lord in worship is to be ready and expectant of hearing from God with a glad heart for what Christ has done and then acting upon it. The third of the imperatives that the psalmist gives us is an astounding call to worship. Come into his presence with singing. Christian, you have been invited, more properly called, to an audience with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And even more astounding is that we are to come into his holy presence, not groveling or weeping or crawling, but singing. In the preface of the 1761 hymnal for the Methodist movement, John Wesley included his instructions for congregational singing. The first two are appropriate, I think, in light of our passage this morning. Wesley says, Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up, and you will find a blessing. And secondly, Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. I know that for some of you, this is a genuine hardship. Singing is not your thing. You don't like to do it. You may not be any good at it. And you certainly don't want to do it in public. But if you are God's child... You have been called to do it. Ask him to help you in this and gladly shoulder this cross as an act of thankful worship. So we see that thankful worship is marked by joyful noise, glad service, and active singing. But why? What is our motivation in expressing thankful worship in this way? In the second stanza of the hymn, which is verse 3 in your Bibles, we're told that thankful worship is a response to God the Creator and God the Redeemer. We worship in thanksgiving because gratitude belongs to the one who made us and redeems us. By his spoken word, the universe and all that is was created. And by his living word, he has bought it back from destruction and ruin. God is the originator of everything and also redeems what he has created. 
Throughout Scripture, we see this dual role of God as creator and redeemer. And theologians have emphasized this scriptural truth throughout the centuries. Notice that the psalmist isn't merely thanking God for the stuff he made and for the blessings of the redeemed life, but rather he is thanking God for being his creator, the source of all things, and for being his redeemer, the source of salvation and its benefits. While it's a subtle difference, it's critical for us to be thankful not just for the stuff, but for the very nature of God. Worldlings do not recognize a creator God. We hear it all the time. We're inundated with it in our society and culture. They prefer to believe that creation is here by accident or chance. There is no intelligent being behind it, no purpose to it all. Christian, listen carefully. To deny God as creator is the height of ingratitude. And there is no place for such speculation in the heart and mind of God's people. Of Christ, Paul speaks. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a non-negotiable for God's people. Jesus Christ, our creator and sustainer, is Lord of heaven and earth. Know that the Lord, he is God. He made us. We are his. He is the one who fashioned us individually in our mother's wombs. Well, perhaps we acknowledge that and affirm that God made everything in the natural world that we can see and touch. However, a more subtle temptation and point of ingratitude that can be found deep in our hearts is when we deny that God is creator of not just the physical creation, but of everything. How many times do we hear statements like, he or she is a self-made man or woman? Or we might be tempted to say, boy, I have this great idea that I came up with. Or look at all of my accomplishments and all that I've done. As if to say that we are fully capable of living life successfully apart from the sustaining power and grace of our creator God. Every good and perfect gift is from our creator and we are nothing without him. Every creative thought, every wonderful invention, every good act, every talent, and every skill is from God. To think that we are the originators of any of these things is to show ingratitude towards God. And we must repent of such thinking. I'm in this boat with you. We all are tempted by pride in this area. And the only remedy for this sin-sick thinking is thanksgiving to God, the creator, and all the creator of all, and the giver of all good gifts. Also in this verse, we see that we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. God is creator, and he is also redeemer. He is the loving shepherd of the sheep. When God created, it was good. But humans, in one act of willful defiance to their creator, plunged humanity and the world into chaos and darkness. 
So God the creator became God the redeemer, the shepherd in pursuit of the lost sheep. Paul continues the earlier thought of Christ as creator with these additional words in Colossians. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here Paul is affirming that Christ as the Messiah is very God, creator and redeemer. Jesus confirmed his title as the shepherd redeemer as recorded in the Gospel of John. What a shock it must have been for the Jews who knew Psalm 100 and Psalm 23, certainly by heart, to hear Jesus say to them, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the good news, folks. The gospel The creator of all has paid the price of redemption for his people and the fallen creation. The one who created and redeemed has an investment in his people, an investment of blood. Do you think with such an investment that our loving shepherd will ever leave us to the wolves? You are a redeemed sheep of his pasture. And nothing can happen to you outside of his perfect sovereign will for your life. No wonder the psalmist is exploding in worship. God in Christ is both our creator and redeemer and is therefore worthy of our highest praise. Continuing in verse 4, we read, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. In the second half of the psalm, we see thanksgiving in response to God's character, the attributes of who he is. Stanza three of the hymn is contained in verse four of your Bibles. And it is marked, as you see, by thanksgiving and praise. The stanza uses a poetic device that we find throughout the psalms, uh, this device of parallelism repeating a phrase in slightly altered verbiage for emphasis, to reinforce. Notice it. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Here we have the crux of the psalm, thanksgiving and praise. When talking with friends and family and co-workers, you find yourself more often complaining about your circumstances or giving thanks for them? When it's prayer time in your gatherings, is it mostly about petition 
or thanksgiving? Are we just asking God for stuff or are we praising and blessing him or speaking well of him? These activities should be central to the Christian life. Thanksgiving and praise to the Lord should fall as naturally off of our lips as I love you does from the lips of young lovers. Thanksgiving to God should permeate our conversations and prayers without any timidity or hesitation in any company. For when we realize what we have to be thankful for, all fear of telling the entire world of our devotion will fall away. G.K. Chesterton said, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play and pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In the book of Job, we read that immediately after Job got the news that everything he owned had been destroyed or taken away and that his entire family had been killed, he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How could any human respond to such incredible suffering in this way? Job knew that it wasn't about the stuff. Not even his own family or his own health and life. Job was focused upon the nature and character of God. And for years and years and years, he had rehearsed these truths in his heart and mind. And when the difficulties of life came as they have come to no other, and everything was stripped away, he could worship in thanksgiving. We must rehearse in our minds the goodness of God. We must continually have an attitude of thanksgiving so that we're ready for the difficult times and we'll understand that even in those times we can be thankful to our loving Heavenly Father who works all things for good to those who are called. Are we then not to bring our petitions to God and to one another? Of course we are. But I think we have that part of the spiritual discipline down. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this psalm, puts it this way. He blessed you. Bless him in return. Bless his name, his character, his person. Whatever he does, be sure you bless him for it. Bless him when he takes away as well as when he gives. Bless him as long as you live under all circumstances. Bless him in all his attributes from whatever point of view you consider him. May the Lord help us to be so consumed thanking and praising him that our wants and desires pale in comparison to it. In this second half of the psalm, we find another motivation for our thanksgiving in addition to God's nature of creator and redeemer. Here the psalmist is focused upon the elements of God's character. Why do we offer him 
thanksgiving and praise. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Thankful worship is a response to God's goodness, God's love, and God's faithfulness. These elements of God's character are essential to understanding who he is and the message of the gospel. Time does not permit us to do a word study and deeply delve into each of these attributes fully. However, any believer who has journeyed with the Savior for any length of time knows the truth of his character. You know in your heart God is good, God is love, and God is faithful. It is a strange puzzle. The American church of the last 50 years is composed of a people with more health, wealth, and prosperity at our disposal, perhaps than any of our brothers and sisters that have gone before us. And yet, I can't help but wonder if we are more or less thankful to our Creator and Redeemer than our predecessors were. How could an emphasis upon thanking God for who He is in His nature and character versus simply thanking Him for the stuff impact you? Your family. Our church, our community, and the world. Imagine what the culture of our families and church would look like if we lived in a state of gratitude to God for who He is. Then imagine how a body of believers like that could impact their community for Christ. But don't think it will happen because we wish it. Thanksgiving is a discipline that must be cultivated in the Word of God and by His Spirit. I believe the problem and the remedy is right before us. The psalmist is giving thanks for who God is, not the immediate circumstances of his life. There is no list of stuff here. And perhaps this is where we go awry. Of course, we should thank God for what he has provided us in material blessings. But if our thanksgiving is merely about the stuff, then what happens when the stuff is gone? We become ungrateful. We settle for so little, don't we? Our sights are set much too low. We have so much more in Christ than the stuff this world has to offer. We have made idols of good health. Food and drink, homes and cars, even familial love and romance. And we've forgotten that we are sheep of the good shepherd, children of the king of kings and lord of lords, citizens of heaven, not of earth, and joint heirs with Christ our brother. So I ask you, do we have anything for which to praise and bless the Lord? Indeed we do. He is our creator and redeemer. Do we have anything for which to be thankful Oh, yes, brothers and sisters, we do, for God is good. God is love, and God is faithful. Our worship, both public and private, should be an active response to what God in Christ has done for his people, what he continues to do, and what he will do ultimately for us. Oh, Christian, when you come to worship, when you come and gather with God's people, come expectantly. Come singing, come gladly, 
Come thankfully. Come loudly. Come joyfully. Come blessing. Come praising. Come worship Christ, the risen King, for he has created you in his image and redeemed you by his blood. Is there really anything left for us to ask for? In closing today, I would like to end with a prayer of thanksgiving from the collection of prayers, the Valley of Vision. If you do not have this collection and are not using it for your personal devotional life, I would recommend it to you, encourage you to get a copy. It will help to instruct you in prayer and is a great resource for God's people. Let us pray. Oh, my God, you, fairest, greatest, first of all objects, my heart admires, adores, loves you. For my little vessel is as full as it can be, and I would pour out all that fullness before you in ceaseless flow. When I think upon and converse with you, 10,000 delightful thoughts spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless you for the soul you have created, for adorning it, for sanctifying it, though it is fixed in barren soil. I bless you for body you have given me, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing senses to enjoy delights, for the ease and freedom of my limbs, for hands, eyes, ears that do your bidding. I bless you for your royal bounty, providing my daily support, for a full table and overflowing cup, for appetite, taste, sweetness. I bless you for social joys of relatives and friends, for ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, for a mind to care for my fellow men, for opportunities of spreading happiness around, for loved ones and the joys of heaven, and for my own expectation of seeing you clearly. I love you above the powers of language to express for what you are to your creatures. Increase my love, O oh my God, through time and eternity. Amen.